festive group with us today. Good to be with you. Always enjoy the opportunity to get a chance to preach. Um, I was just thinking this morning, it's been hard to believe that uh, my family and I have been involved with this fellowship now for 30 years. Can you believe that? I was two when it started. It was actually, it's amazing how much life can change you over time. But uh, I'm excited with the chance to, to preach this morning, and I, we're going to talk about growth, but we're going to look at it from a different angle in terms of your spiritual growth. Uh, July of last year, uh, my mom of 93 years passed from dementia Alzheimer's. Uh, she had about an eight-year journey uh, through that whole process, and so did our family. And I was thinking about signs of cognitive decline that people have, right? They sometimes forget appointments and dates. They forget recent conversations and events. They might feel increasingly overwhelmed by having to make decisions or make different types of plans, have a hard time understanding directions or instructions. Uh, they might lose their sense of direction, lose the ability to organize tasks or become more impulsive. And then I paused for a second and started to realize, you know what? Sometimes that happens when we have spiritual cognitive decline, isn't it? We forget appointments and dates in terms of our engagement with Christ. We forget conversations and events. We avoid the truth that we're taught. We get increasingly overwhelmed by making decisions because we focus on the issues rather than focus on the master. We have a hard time in being involved in understanding direction and instructions because we don't want to make a mistake and we're naturally self-centered. We lose our sense of direction because we're not applying God's truth. We lose that ability to organize and look at our world and more importantly, we become impulsive because it's all based upon what we want. It's that little self-narcissistic opera, the me, me, me mentality that we have. So today I want to be able to talk about growth spiritually, but specifically I want to talk about growth from the context of living in the gospel. And it's something that I felt challenged by because so often, let me start off by saying this, we view the gospel as the entry point for salvation and then we think we're in and we're done. But we're not. The reality of it is, is that we need the gospel to be lived out every day and have that context of that understanding so we can live a life that pleases and honors him. You know, and when we talk about spiritual decline, what happens there, right? It's always memory. It's things that we forget. And that even happened biblically in the Old Testament and New Testament. In Jeremiah, the scripture says, my people have forgotten me. It's also found in Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 13. Forgetfulness is a common yet deadly spiritual disease. That's why God's word gives so much emphasis of calling us to remember. In the book of Deuteronomy, it commands God's people not to forget again him nine different times. For example, in Deuteronomy 4.9, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord that I made with you. And he goes on to say that you're going to make carved images, right? In the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Forgetting is not a consequence-free act. It can be deadly. And in the case above, a forgetful heart may find itself running from God as opposed to running to him. Psalm 119.6 says, I will delight in your statures. I will not forget your word. Proverbs 3.1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Do not forget. You know, isn't that why we do the Lord's Supper? We do the Lord's Supper because Jesus says by way of what? Remembrance. 
Why do we have to? It's because we forget. The most amazing act that ever happened in the history of the world, we have to be reminded and be, bring it back by way of remembrance because by nature we will forget. That fascinates me and it humbles me because I feel terrible when I go and pass time and realize I have forgotten what it is that Christ has done on my behalf. The Apostle Paul, again, admonishes both Timothy and Titus to remember. He encourages his young pastor friend to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Even the Old New Testament saints and the Old had that problem. So in many respects, I feel comforted because I'm like them, but then I realize, look what God has done for me and the fact that I can let that go past. So I want us to, again, think about today How can we practice the presence of the gospel and realize that it's not merely the entry point for salvation, but it is something that is ongoing for us in terms of our commitment as followers of Christ? You know, we hear the term gospel, and really what it means is good news. It means to bring or announce good news. It's used over 90 different times in the New Testament. So it's a powerful word. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul summarizes the most basic ingredients of the gospel, namely the death, burial, resurrection, and then appearances of Christ. But he goes, note these uh, statements that he makes in verses 3 through 5. It starts off by saying, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you, that you received on which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold firmly to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve. That is the gospel message. But that gospel message has significance for us, again, as believers today. Matter of fact, I want to share a verse with you that is important that I think if I had to pick one verse out of the New Testament that I believe really is the heart of the gospel, that we can understand the transactional event that took place through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection would be 2 Corinthians 5.21. And if you read along with me, and we'll start it, it says, He made him, he is God, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Think about that. God treated him as if Jesus had committed every sin ever committed by every person who ever believed, though in fact Jesus had committed none of them. And then hanging on the cross, we know that Jesus was holy. He was harmless. He was undefiled. He was that spotless lamb that was talked about in the Old Testament that would allow for the permanent eternal sacrifice when his blood would be shed for the sins of all believers. He was never for a split second, though, a sinner. He was holy God on that cross. But then it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I mean, this is amazing to me. You see, this is the doctrine of substitution. This particular doctrine was the one that turned the Reformation and changed the gospel presentation from the Roman Catholic emphasis now over to the Protestant Reformation, we call that. What happened was Jesus was substituted on our behalf. On the doctrine of substitution, what we get is complete forgiveness. 
covered by the eternal righteousness of Christ. When God looks at the cross, he sees you. But when he looks at you, he sees Christ. I mean, think about that. Jesus was changed out for us. He suffered the penalty of our sin. And now when God sees us, he sees his son. Is that not amazing? Are you not in awe of that? Remarkable. That passage really is the heart of the gospel. So today what I want to do is, is, is remind us that the message that saves is also the message that sanctifies us. I mean, do you feel stuck or stagnant? Do you get tired of going through the motions of your faith? Do you feel you have spiritual cognitive dissonance and you forget things only to be mindful of the fact that you're not living the way God would want you to? And I want to give you a passage that we're going to address We often think the gospel is the starting point of the Christian life, but it's more than that. Tim Keller said the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. Rather, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. We often see the gospel as a starting point rather than the main point of all life. But the truth is, is that the gospel is key to all ongoing growth in our lives. I want to say that again. The gospel is key to all ongoing growth in our life. We need to practice the presence of of the gospel. Galatians 2.14 says we are called to live lives in step with the truth of the gospel. In Romans 8, Paul even explains that through the gospel, God frees us from condemnation and God offers us a new way to live. The gospel, Christ suffering once for sins the righteousness for the for righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And the summary of the gospel is this. God created us for his glory. Therefore, everybody, every human should live for God's glory. Nevertheless, because of man's sin, we're born in sin, and all have fallen short of that glory. And because of that, we deserve punishment. Scripture says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. And then in his great mercy, God sends his only son Christ into the world to provide sinners the way of eternal life. Galatians 3 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the gospel. Therefore, the eternal life that we have is a free gift to all those who will trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. The scripture says in Acts 16, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works that you do so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, Philippians 3.8. You see, understanding the gospel applies to every dimension of life. If one is going, ongoing challenges that we have, the message that saves, again, is the message that sanctifies. The good news about Jesus is relevant, not just for conversion. See, the gospel is for the Christian life. 
Disciples of Jesus must hold firmly to the saving message, knowing that the power of God transforms them through it. And there are no spiritual shortcuts to following Christ. A disciple needs to behold the glory and the beauty of love in Christ, and that means the gospel is indispensable for our Christian experience. Well, this morning what I want to do is go through a passage that has been one that's very important to me, but I'll share this from an author that I read. He said, the good news about Jesus is relevant, not just for conversion. The gospel is for the Christian life. The disciples of Jesus must hold firmly to the saving message, knowing that the power of God grows and transforms them through it. There are no spiritual shortcuts to follow Christ. We need to behold the glory and beauty of God's love in Christ, and that means the gospel, again, is indispensable for us. So I want to go through 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 and give you a context of what we have in Christ to be reminded again, because we have to have knowledge of what God has done for us so that we can be mindful of how he wants us to live. That's why I want us to practice the presence of the gospel each and every day. And I want to start off with these first few verses, and we're going to talk about there are some prerequisites again. His divine power has given us everything we needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into glory and his excellence. Thus, he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises so that through them we may escape the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. Ever thought about that? Your Christianity means you're a participant of the divine nature. Not like some religions that say you will become gods. That's not the point. We are children of God. We were made in his image, but we become participants of his divine nature. So let's start to kind of break through some of these words. So we want to talk about some general ideas of what this passage has to say. In the very beginning, it all starts with him. It all starts with his power. His divine power that we're talking about is the divine power that created the universe. His divine power is the divine power that sustains all things in nature. His divine power can heal the sick, can raise the dead. His divine power can save you from your deadness in sin. That's what God did for you. That's his power that he has. You can grow as much as you want because you have access to God's power. He doesn't merely tell you what to do, but he gives you that sustaining power to make sure that you can do it. You see, God has invested his power in your spiritual growth. Even Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. He strengthens me. And what God expects you to attempt, he also expects you to achieve by and through his power. So that's the power that God gives us. It's amazing. But he also talks about those precious promises. You know, I think of promises, it's almost like when you get a check, someone writes you a check, hopefully for a significant amount of money. Matter of fact, did you hear about that person that won that lottery? 1.3 billion. Wouldn't you like to be best friends with that person right now? They live in Illinois. Let's all go take a bus trip and meet that person. 1.3 billion, where are you going to spend that kind of money? But he's going to get a check or she's going to get a check and you are believing deep down that when you get that check, that you, it will be only as good as when you cash that check. So a check is a promise, right? It's been written to you and now you're hoping that when you go to the bank, you're going to be able to get that money in return. And that's what God does for us. His promises are, I'm going to provide you with that power. He has written the check, but again, he's the bank. He's going to provide it to us, right? 
And a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. We are, it is made by God himself. And it goes back not only in terms of uh, in the Garden of Eden, when, of course, sin started, but think about that. The promises of God started even before the universe was created because God knew exactly what was going to happen, but he created the world anyway because he wants to have relationship with you and with me. But remember, God has promised us that we can escape from our old life and go into a new direction, but you have to cash the check. You have to trust in Christ. And then you have to take those promises and apply them to your life. And I was thinking about this. Many times I believe you can tell how mature a person is, a Christian is, by how that person treats God's promises. His promises are great because they're from a great God. They lead to a great life. And when you're born again, the life of God gets attached to your life. Amen? Is that not amazing? Whoa. Forgive me. I'm getting excited up here. Now, that's God's part. But let's talk about our part, and that's in the next series of verses. For this very reason, you must make every effort. You must make every effort. It's not passive. It's not indifferent. You can't just think about it. Well, maybe I'll get there. You must make every effort and I su- to support your faith with excellence and with excellence, with knowledge and knowledge, with self-control, with self-control, endurance, with endurance, with uh, 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 godliness, with godliness, mutual affection or brotherly affection, brotherly love and mutual affection with love. I mean, this, again, seems a little bit paradoxical, right? How can I add anything to the faith that I've been given by God himself, but he's requiring that I do? And that is the process of sanctification. Sanctification is the flip side of the coin of salvation. But guess what? Salvation, you only part you played is that God saved you. I couldn't save myself. You can't save yourself. Can you save yourself? Scriptures is very, very clear about that. For by grace you're saved through faith. And guess what? That's not of yourself. What is it? It is the gift of God so that no man shall boast. That's our natural tendency. Look what I did. Aren't I special? But God's saying, you're special enough that I sacrificed my son, but I give you the faith to believe even in me so that you can have, again, the gospel transform and change your life. Seems contradictory, paradoxical. How can we add anything to everything, right? But it requires that we do have to cooperate. We have to cooperate with God's operation. He says, giving all diligence literally means make every possible effort to intensively exert yourself. And this is not speaking about salvation because it's a gift, but this is about sanctification, how we live our life as a result of the change that God made, taking us from death into life. And you know what? Spiritual growth is never accidental. It's always intentional. And God gives us the power to make and the promises, but we have to work out our own salvation, demonstrate that the internal change has occurred and it makes itself manifest. That's why apple trees can only bear apples because their inward nature is an apple. You will never see an apple tree bear bananas because that is not its inward nature. So what's on the inside is always made manifest on the outside. Another way to think of the gospel is two words, root and fruit. You have to have the root of faith so that you can demonstrate the fruit of obedience to him. So people look at themselves and say, well, is that person in? I don't know. If your life has been transformed by the gospel, because remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
You were dominated by the prince of the power of the air. And Ephesians 2 says, you were by nature children of wrath. I can remember when I, after I came to Christ, my dad passed when I was 19. And my sister and brother and I were in his hospital room literally to his last breath. And though that was extraordinarily painful, what I remember most about that night was that after my dad had his last breath and we were literally observing every last labored breath. But when he passed, and I realized at that point that he had passed from, again, this world on, the Lord flooded me with that passage about that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, yet though he dies, shall what? Shall live. Remember, that's what the glory of the gospel is all about. He's taking us from a dead to life. And he used my dad's death to reinforce in my world that, Jeff, though your dad dies, though you will die, you now move into life with me. That's what the gospel is all about. And those that are in Christ move into the kingdom forever. Those that are not are separated God forever. So again, it requires cooperation. But it also requires that we adapt. And you say, Jeff, what is that? Well, that's when he starts talking about those various steps up there of what we need to follow. We're given the power. He makes us promises, but we add the disciplines and then he'll give us everything we need to pull that off. But he tells, here's what you got to do. You got to have virtue. When we talk about virtue in the very beginning to support your faith, He's talking about moral excellence, something that fulfills the purpose for which we were made. Do you have virtue in your life? Do you have moral excellence? If you're a follower of Christ, are you demonstrating that? How about knowledge? That's the Greek word gnosis, which means expert, full knowledge, the ultimate knowledge. It's a growing, personal, authentic knowledge of your relationship with Christ. And with that knowledge, you then want to live a life that honors and pleases him. Or do you have that knowledge, but then still choose to do what you want in spite of the truth that you have? And then he says, if you go from virtue to knowledge, then you move from knowledge to self-control. Self-control is that which bridges the gap between what we know and what we do. Greek word means to hold oneself together. I love that. And it speaks of a training athlete. Yeah, even in our spiritual world, we have to train like an athlete would. It doesn't come naturally. And then it talks about perseverance, and that literally means to bear up under the trial, to hang in there, to move forward, the endurance that we have. And from endurance, we go to godliness. Literally, it means God-likeness. It speaks of being right with God and therefore right with other people. And from godliness, we move to brotherly kindness, which is Philadelphia, brotherly love. From there, we move to agape love, which is all about being sacrificial. And then again, we need to realize that each of these kind of leads to the next. As a matter of fact, the best way to look at this would be like a telescope. They're not little steps that we're taking, but it's kind of a telescope that expands out. And these are all the steps that we're going to be following that demonstrates because of the power of the gospel, the transformation of God's power and promises that our world has changed because we in sanctification participate in that. And then he goes on in these verses, for if these things are yours and increasing among you, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For anyone who lacks these things is blind, suffering from eye disease, forgetful of the cleansing of his sins. And I've got to say, that idea of forgetful just really kicked me in a few places that I don't like to be kicked as I thought about that. It's very tough because I can remember those things that I remember those things that I'm choosing to forget. 
I know the truth and I'm not responding to it. So let's think this thing through for a second if we can in these particular verses. Abound means to have so much more, it's an overflow, right? If these things are yours and increasing or abounding, barren also then talks about idle, unproductive, literally something that has stopped working. Fruit, though, is an ever-expanding life that blesses other people. And so he talks about, again, you're ineffective and unfruitful. Uh, some commentators have also said those particular words can also be descriptive of a non-believer. Think about that. Barren, ineffective, and unfruitful. It implies the idea of an unemployed laborer. What it's saying there is you can get to the point that your life is indistinguishable from somebody who's in Christ. And that's a messy life to be in. If I can't see a distinguishable difference between a transformed life, God's faith taking root in me, a faith that I couldn't self-generate but God has to implant in me, things change so quickly. And you know, when you think about faith, James talked about the faith that we have, and I think one author wrote, I thought this was an interesting way he explained it. He says, you know what? You have some faulty faith. These are people that think they've got it, but they really don't, right? They're double-minded. They say X, but they do Y. Nah, not going to fly. You can have firm faith, which is genuine saving faith, right? It's all dependent upon who you believe. But in our world, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing of the Word of God. But in Ephesians said again, God gives us the faith to believe. You can't even say it's your faith. Because God wants us to realize, I'm the one that does it for you. And as a result of what I've done, this is what you now must do. And then we have flowing faith, right? This is that faith that's productive, and, it, it, and others get the benefit of that fruit. Remember, faith has to take root, and then you have to have fruit. If we don't have a faith that has taken root, you will have no fruit, and you will really wonder if you're in or not. That's why God has to be the one that implants that in your heart and substituted Christ's life for ours. So now that when God sees us, he sees Christ. Amazing. The gospel, practicing the presence of the gospel. And then finally, you know what? We have to move heavenward. We've got to think about that. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to confirm your call and election, for if you do this, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. I know that when God saves me, it's permanent. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me, I will in no wise cast out. That's why I like that salvation is dependent upon what God does for me because if it's based upon me doing stuff, I don't do it well. John Wesley was an interesting theologian. John Wesley was the father of the modern Methodist movement, as we know it. They called themselves Methodicalists, thus it was contracted to Methodist. That's how we got Methodist. So if any of you used to be Methodist, that's how you got your name. But Wesley was very interesting because he felt that he could lose his salvation. But I realized for Wesley, which was interesting, that's what drove Wesley. Because Wesley always wanted to demonstrate that what he was doing for the Lord. And I think, unfortunately, his motivation was right. But sadly, deep down, he had that concern that his faith wasn't in. He was the type as an itinerant preacher. If he was on his horse and he fell off, he felt that was a judgment from God. And he had to start back over again. But yet that man, over the course of his lifetime, put together over 50,000 messages and hymns. Remarkable in a short lifespan. 
because he wanted to demonstrate to his heavenly father that he loved him and he wanted to obey. But boy, he carried the burden of, I'm not sure if I'm in. But I want us to have the assurance that salvation is what God does for us. Sanctification is what we do with him, with his promises and with his power as we go forward. You see, all that you're building now is for the next place, right? We're paying it forward for the kingdom. This is not our home. We're moving on ultimately to be in Christ and his presence. For when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And we want to build now with that move in mind. You know, the Greeks used the term abundant entrance to describe an athlete who won the Olympics and was greeted back home. You're going to have an abundant entrance after we move from earthly living to heavenly living forever. And in heaven, you will never regret the hours you spend doing the Lord's work. So now we get to build on that move, but it's all based upon what God has done for us through his power, on his promises, as we look forward. It's practicing the presence of the gospel. So how are you going to arrive? The gains of heaven will be more than compensate for any of the losses that we have here on earth. You see, Christian discipleship cannot be achieved by following clever formulas or spiritual shortcuts. Believers will achieve true growth by holding firmly to and continually appropriating the gospel of God's grace. And while some people consider the gospel to be relevant only for conversion, again, I want to emphasize the Bible teaches the gospel is, uh, again, dispensable for the Christian life. Let me wrap this up with some points from a book that I read, and I thought these were powerful. I want you to start preaching to yourself. You ever done that? It's kind of like self-talk. <laughs> but I want you to preach in this way. First of all, God made everyone for his glory. Amen? Remind yourself that you were made for the glory of God. So then we have to ask the next question, am I living a life that does just that? Number two, second one, everyone deserves the wrath of God. That's a tough one to swallow, but that's the reality. How foolish for us to ignore that reality. Everyone, not just a few, everyone, three cons, three vows, deserves the wrath of God. But the gospel changed that because Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ what? Rose again. Next, Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Amazing grace that we have. Finally, sin is not your master. How many believe that? Don't raise your hands. I think a lot of us struggle with that. I think a lot of us in the quietness of our heart think sin is the master of our world. But if God resides within us, we can stare it down and we can be obedient to live on his power. That's why God gives us his promises. They're not made up. They're his promises. He gives us his power, the power that created the earth, the power that brings dead back to life, the power that raised Christ from the dead. Remarkable. That's what we have as believers. Believers are still being saved. That means it's an ongoing process, right? We don't realize that until when we finally move from this world into the kingdom. But we have to continue growing. Suffering will serve as sanctification of the believers. Suffering's okay. Remember what James said. My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. But let endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Amen? 
You have to let it happen. Peter talks about the testing like that of fine metals. And we know when you're doing gold or silver, the whole point of that person who is heating that metal up is to get the dross, the impurities in that metal that rise to the top so that, again, person working with that metal is going to scrape it off. And that's exactly what God does when we have trials. He's trying to demonstrate to us that we have dross in our life that is restricting us from being pure for the gospel. And that's a good thing because God then reveals that to us so he can scrape it off. And then finally, believers have a sure and incomparable hope. Stop and think of a non-believer right now. What hope do they have? And then stop and think about us when God has entrusted us with the gospel to be able to compel others to come to Christ. If you look back in 2 Corinthians 5, that is that whole passage about what the gospel is. But in that passage, he challenges us to be ambassadors, right, for Christ, compelling people to come to Christ. We don't know who's going to make it into heaven, do we? But who does? God only requires that we compel. He will determine the destination. If we're not compelling, then we are not doing what God has asked us to do. And that's a tough one because we have a lot of people right now, they don't want to hear the gospel. We live in a world today right now that you mentioned you have a love for Christ. People will shut you down so fast. We have such a woke world. And it's amazing how fearful we get in a woke world, but yet we have a God that raised his son from the dead, translated me into his kingdom because of what Christ has done. But I'm worried about some jokester because of a woke world. We have truth that can transform We have truth that will change lives, but we also have a gospel, again, that God demands that we go out and share. The Lord said, go make disciples of all nations and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, consider it. He said, do it. So in conclusion, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness. It means that you flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteousness. It means that we get to appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law and that he is our propitiation and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward any of us. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every day addresses both the self-righteous Pharisee and the guilt-laden sinner. Boy, do I see that in my life. That means I'm schizophrenic. Forgive me for that the Pharisee and the guilt-laden sinner that dwells in our hearts. The problem with self-righteousness is that it seems almost impossible to recognize in ourselves. So to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith and his shed blood and his righteous life. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we're grateful that we have this chance to spend time with you this morning. And Father, there are some in this room right now that may have heard the gospel for the first time. The fact that, Father, you made him that had no sin to be sin on our behalf. And Father, if we don't trust in that, then we not, cannot in any way have a residence with you forever. My prayer, Father, is that people will understand that Jesus Christ made claims about himself that nobody else ever did, but he backed those up because not only did he die and was buried, but he rose again, and he was seen. 
And Father, we look forward to that glorious return of his. But I am grateful, Father, that again, that for by grace we're saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not that any man should boast. My prayer, Father, is that for those in this room that right now need to recognize if they have steered away from your truth, bring them back to it, Father, so they can rest in your promises and in your power. And Father, for those that don't know Christ, but you are drawing them back to you, I pray that they will get a taste of the promises and that power. And then, Father, that you would consummate that as you bring them back and make them your children. And Lord, finally, remind us that every day, in every way, help us not to merely think of the gospel as an entrance into your kingdom, but Father, help us view the gospel as a life that we live until we're finally there. And we ask you to bless this time and these people in Jesus' name.